Welcome to another episode of Unafraid with Josh and Nate. Let's get to the show. All right, back in a lonely podcast room all by myself because Nathan's daughter decided to get sick and not be able to come over today. Really, I just think yeah. Nathan wanted a break from holding mm-hmm. uh, my son. You know, he's probably gotten pretty tired of it. Haven't you, Nathan? Not at all, man. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely most likely just allergies, but because of your little one and because of your precious wife, we wanted to play it safe and figured it was better to just kind of do this from abroad. Yeah. Even though it gave us a little bit of a startup headache today, trying to get it all figured out. Yeah, but, you know, we were trying to do a different system, so now go back to Old Faithful. But uh, anyway, so we did get um, some update this last week on our last podcast from none other than Mr. Jody Mays. Uh, Nathan, you want to share his update that he gave that we so requested of him in the last episode? Yeah. So he said, I listened to uh, Josh and I listened to y'all's podcast today on purpose. At least it was on accident. Right. Right. You know what I mean, <laughs> I mean no, but the podcast was on purpose. Uh, as always, I laughed, I learned and I was challenged to change. Thanks for the shout outs on base camp and retelling my 12 years in the desert at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver story. I wish I was as holy as y'all portray me because I spent 12 years there so God could do open heart surgery on me and my rebelliousness against authority. I was a rebel in the 60s and my long hair symbolized my rebellion. The Bible says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and God was not going to use me if I could not humble myself and submit to authority over me like God or my bad boss. During that 12 years, I complained and whined just like the Jews, but I was determined to be faithful and let Jesus change me, so I followed him. While in the desert and learned humility, obedience, and submission, I am a hard-headed West Texas boy who thinks I am right. 12 years in the desert changed me completely. I am still reading my Bible and trying to do what it says, following Jesus like you guys emphasized in the podcast today. Keep up the good work. Love you guys. And we love you too, Pastor Jody. Yeah, we do. Uh, and we and we love that you gave us that feedback and that uh, I'm I'm very glad that that I was somewhat on the ball when I was talking about, you know, the 40 years lost in the desert and the and Josh had mentioned the whining and the complaining. Yep. Uh and and you just kind of He said, "Yeah, I did." Know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think is true because it's like if you think of most of us, right? Like it's hard to go through long periods of time of not understanding what's going on in life and not complain some, you know, and that's but, where we really have to lean on God and just trust him. So in that episode with Jody, we had mentioned my dad yep. and we had mentioned him and his upbringing and how radically different it was from most other people's. And Jody said, you know, that, yeah, I've got this radical story, but if you want a story that beats all stories, you got to talk to Mike Richards about it. You know what, you Nathan? Know, so, I've got a really good idea. We should have him on the podcast. You want to do that? Yeah, when, I think so. When should, we, when should we schedule him in? I don't know. What do you think? I think now's as good a time as any. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Richards. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, we are very, very excited to 
give another opportunity for you to tell your story because it is a really, really awesome one. And I'm going to leave it at that and let Nathan say anything else he wants to say before we kick it over to Mike. I just, uh, I love hearing the retelling of your story because I've heard it a couple times, but each time I hear it, it seems like we get just a little bit more information about your story that, that maybe you've recollected or you think to yourself like, man, I wish I had said this the last time I spoke about it. Now I'm going to speak about it again and I'm going to include that part. So I'm really looking forward to being the one that's actually able to stop you at certain points and ask you questions that I might have and Josh as well. So I'm not sure if you know this, but Josh Pressler uh, works with this group, this group called KOZ, which is a kids outdoor zone uh, Mm -hmm. with our church. And uh, well, he does with vertical now as well. He was doing it with the previous church he was at, but he's now also doing it. Um, Well, you're still with that church, right, Josh? Yeah. Okay, so he's still with his original church doing it, but our church, Vertical, also does it. Anyways, you know what Kids Outdoor Zone is, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that's what interests okay. me so much about your story is because Kids Outdoor Zone is all catered towards kids without fathers. And so it sets up it sets up perfectly for a Mike Richards story, which I'm kind of teasing here, started as a fatherless household. So, right. Mike, why don't you start telling your story with us. Okay. Well, hmm. tell my story. I really need to start from the beginning. I was born Michael Colacurcio in Seattle, Washington in 1955. I was an only child. I was raised by a single mom. Uh, my mom was a high school dropout working nights as a cocktail waitress and, uh, and days as a receptionist. Mom wasn't around home much when I was growing up, uh, but she did the best she could teaching me how to make do or simply do without. She instilled in me a a sense of God, but nothing with depth or or nothing resembling a relationship with him or Jesus. Um, I remember seeing my father only a couple of times around age seven and 13. Mom told me that they had divorced before I was born and he was linked to organized crime in the Seattle area. And he had to leave town in 1967 to avoid jail. He settled in New Orleans where he owned and operated strip clubs, massage parlors and other businesses. Um, I remember being lonely and envious of schoolmates that lived with both parents. They had siblings and they lived in a house. We lived in on the ground floor in an apartment house. And uh, when I came home from school, mom was at work. I was expected to clean the apartment, make my dinner, and go to bed on time. And our front door, we had a large frosted glass window. And we were right across from the apartment mailboxes. So there was almost always someone on the other side of that door checking their mail. And... When I'm home alone in the evening and I'd watched enough episodes of Twilight Zone to be convinced that they were going to come through that door and get me. Um, I started work at age 11 to earn money for stuff to fill the void in my life and escape the loneliness. At 13 in 1968, 
I legally changed my name to Richards because I didn't know my father and I had an uncle I did love and admire. And well, his last name was the same as my mom's. So was um, your, sorry to interrupt, Mike, was your uncle like very involved in your life growing up? Was he kind of like a father figure to you? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. He, uh, we lived in Seattle. He lived in uh, Denver, Colorado, and they would come and visit us every summer for maybe a week or so. And that, that limited time, uh, just he was larger than life, and uh, he just he really was a great guy. So at least you had someone someone there trying to be present that wasn't, you know, yeah. that you could feel connected yeah. to. Okay. Yeah, one, 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 one week a year, yeah. Got it. So I, I also had a question about your mother where you said that um, she wasn't around much while you were growing up, but she did the best she could teaching you how to make or simply do without. Can you touch a little bit on like what, what you recall her teaching you at that young age? Well, teaching is really a, uh, a strong word. She didn't go out of her way to teach me how to do things. She basically instilled in me that you either make do with what you got, or you do without. So okay. kind of um, an observational learning. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she didn't, hmm, she wasn't mean. She wasn't cruel. It was just reality. We were very poor. Uh, I mean, I didn't know we were poor, but, uh, you know, there was a lot that we just didn't have. So for instance, milk, you know, everybody takes milk for granted. Well, back in the day, uh, she would buy, Carnation evaporated, not evaporated, Carnation instant milk. And it came mm -hmm. in a big box. And then she would buy uh, uh, a quart or a gallon of milk and she'd mix the two together. And by doing that, she would make it last, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks. Oh, that, so you, for, were, you were I, lucky, Mike. My stepdad for a while, he made us do that box milk with just water. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Mom... The good thing about mom was uh, she uh, would only do things that she would participate in. So she wouldn't drink the stuff you just just. Yeah. Yeah. It literally yeah. just so, tastes like f flavored white water. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, sorry to sidetrack you. Oh, go ahead, Nate. One, one more. How did, yeah. how, you said that she instilled a sense of God in you. Yeah. How did, what did she do to instill that sense of God in you? Well, let's see. I think she gave me a Bible when I was young. And uh, uh, she would go to church every once in a while with a friend. So she, she and we would always say, uh, you know, some kind of grace over meal. And that was basically, that was the sense of God. And there wasn't really much more than that. Um, there was no relationship. It was just basically uh, she taught me that God exists, that the Bible was God's word, and I should read it. That's pretty much it. Okay. So, and that was, that was essentially what you viewed as being her relationship with God as well, was just simply kind of like, this is how you should live your life. We're going to occasionally go to church and read this Bible. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so fast forward back. I think we're 1968 and you're 13, I believe. Well, uh, let's see. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, when I was 13, I changed my name 
uh, like I said, from from Color Curricula Richards, because I didn't know my dad, and I did know my uncle, and uh, his last name and my mom's were the same, and I didn't, you know, didn't even think about that fact, but it was just, uh, you know, Richards made sense to me. Color Curricula, I just didn't, I knew the name only from the Mafia connection, that was about it. Um, so, yeah. Um, that same year, though, uh, I started work as a carny at the Seattle Center, which uh, that was the site of the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. Um, I worked as a uh, ball boy in the bottle toss game. That's where they throw the ball, try to knock the milk bottles off of the stand. Can't knock them over. You have to knock them off. And uh, I would set up and uh, I moved uh, over time. I moved from the back to the front. I ran the booths and. Typically, I would work from 11 a.m. in the morning till 1 a.m. in the uh, in the morning uh, mm. weekend. That was during the school year, and then six days a week during the summer. Um, after work uh, at night, we would uh, on the weekends, I should say, uh, I would join the other carnies at a bar across the street from the center, and we drink beer and play darts until 2 a.m. closing. Now, was this obviously not still at 13? No, it was when I was 13. When you were 13, you would stay and hang out and drink beer and do all that with the carnies? I was kind of a big 13. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, let's see. Well, through my teen years, basically work, money, and beer were my priorities. School was an inconvenience that I didn't take seriously. I mean, I graduated in 1973, number 407th out of 505. Um, it wasn't dead last, but it wasn't important to me. Now I see my mistake, but uh, you know, that's the way it was. So at 19, I met Rebecca. And that day I was going to a coworker's apartment we were going to make fake Washington state driver's licenses for personal use and to sell. I mean, we had this really is this something, is this something you knew how to do going into it? I have to know. It doesn't pertain to this. It's not that important to the story, but did you already know how to make fake IDs or was a buddy like, Hey, come here. I got to show you something. It was a collaborative effort. So remember now, <laughs> this is, this is 1973. Okay. Uh -huh. So, Technology, we weren't on the cutting edge. Yeah. So what he did was together we built this mock-up. We used poster board, and we <laughs> we made a life-size portrait of the Washington State driver's license, and then we would stand in front of it and take a picture on one of those Polaroid Instamatics, and then we would cut it out and we would laminate it. Oh and my it, gosh! On the front, it looked really legit. That would look wow. so like trash as a fake ID in like today's world. <laughs> but I, this was maybe. then. Yeah. You'd be surprised. Oh, but, so wild. I've, I've seen that I've seen that played out in so many movies though. It's it's yeah. funny to know that that's something that that you yourself have done. Yeah. yeah. So so let me clarify. We hadn't quite gotten to the end end, okay. end, end result. Sure. So I'm on my way to his to his apartment. So he lived he lived in a, in a three-story apartment. He was on the ground floor on the left side. And as I pull in, 
I park right in front and I'm getting out of my car and I'm, I'm fixing to go to his apartment. And I look up and on the third floor, uh, I can see a friend from high school walking by and behind her was the most stunning female I had never seen before. And I immediately forgot all about my plans of larceny and forgery. <laughs> and I made a beeline to meet this girl. And that was in August of 1974. And on June 7th of 1975, Rebecca and I were married. So eight to nine months of dating, and that was it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And had you not seen her, who knows what type of debauchery you would have gone into and what it would have led to. Well, I can, I can elucidate on that. Uh-huh. Because in February of 1975, so I met her in 74, August 74. Uh, I, yeah, in February of 75, my father called me and asked me to come to New Orleans to join him running his business. So I was unaware at the time, but he had actually stayed in contact with my mother just to kind of keep tabs on me and see how I was doing. So I went ahead and went. And when I got there, I arrived in, in, in New Orleans. I learned that I had two other brothers. Uh, he had two sons from other women. And yeah. one was older than me and one was younger than me. And uh, the older one was there. That was Billy. And the younger one was still in uh, school in uh, Washington State. Um, after about a month living, uh, working and playing on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, he offered me a year to start. That would have been over $300,000 today. Wow. Yeah. At the time, I was earning $5,000 a year working in a hamburger restaurant. You talk about temptation right there. (laughs) Oh, it was a no-brainer for me. I had it already figured out. I figured I could work two years max, save up the money, because along with the money he was going to give me, he was going to be a place to stay. I could, I could make sure my expenses were minimal. And I knew that I could get back home to Seattle and buy a nice house for Becky and me, and we'd be happy. So, I mean, I had it all worked out. And uh, even though she was in my life, I was still looking for money to solve my problems. And uh, so I was ready to take his offer. Becky was not. It came down to him or Rebecca. And how, I chose how serious how serious did that play a part though? Like was that a big fight between y'all? It definitely was a heavy discussion. I had logic behind me and, and you know, this is sure. you know, it should have worked out, but uh no. <laughs> so it was basically in fact it came down to she she made it clear, you know, she wasn't angry with me. Uh, she said, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's okay. Uh, but yeah. this is not for me. This is not the life for me. And so, no. One of the things well, that okay. I like that you said right there was that it had logic behind it. And if you think about that in life too, a lot of the decisions that we make when they're even poor decisions, we can make them logically. Oh, and yeah. that may not be the best decision for us in that moment. So the fact that you had somebody else in your life there to also say, well, it's kind of, you know, this is the ultimatum at hand. 
it yeah. kind of yeah it it could make sense to the world yeah but if it doesn't make sense in god's kingdom then there's no there's no place for it you know in, in hindsight i think the word logic is probably the wrong word i think rationalization is a better word yeah because i could rationalize every dollar he was offering me and and discard mm-hmm. anything negative well, a lot um, of times when we rationalize we tell rational rational lies so. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can live with that. Yeah, um, I mean, just an aside, Bourbon Street, as far as I know, it really hasn't changed, but but it's um, my older brother, he was, uh, he was living there at the time, and uh, he was always trying to get dad's acceptance, and, uh, but dad was always seeing the uh, the the worst in him and he had gotten into drugs and he'd gotten into alcohol and he'd gotten into uh, uh, lots and lots of relationships um, and he'd actually seen several of his friends killed or die on the street either through actual straight out uh, homicide or suicide, or drug overdose. I mean, that life would definitely have killed me. So Nathan, you you made a comment about, you know, had I not met Becky, what would have happened? I can tell yes. you straight out, uh, with the mouth that I had on me at the time, either I would have been killed in New Orleans, mm-hmm. or I would have been very successful, and I would have been a very lonely, uh, dried up old man. There was no happy ending to that story. Anyway, that's that's interesting that you can see that in retrospect, and that you didn't make that because sometimes it's it's I I could say that if I was in your position and I was offered that that temptation, I don't know at that age how easy it would have been for me to have turned it down. You know, and it's like in that split moment you can make a decision that affects your entire life, and your life would not have played out the way that it has now. Yeah, and right. it, so- it sounds like he had two decisions that could have affected his entire life, and one was the ultimatum being given. Right. One was work, one was love. Yeah. Um, I think, as I recall, um, no, no, number one, I'm 19 at the time. I'd only seen my father literally four times before in my life. Um so I, I basically knew him by reputation. Um, while I was in New Orleans that month, we didn't spend a lot of time together. I saw him at breakfast, which was one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I saw him intermittently throughout the day uh, when he wasn't taking a nap or, or someplace else. I spent most of my time in New Orleans with my brother. Um, so when it came to this decision, um, there wasn't really a relationship with him in the first place. So really it was kind of a business decision. And I admittedly, I think I was a little clouded in my judgment. Uh, I I knew what $65,000 meant back then. And, and I knew what I was making back then. And that was obviously a huge draw, but I really cared about, Rebecca, and I think part of it was from my upbringing. You know, I, 
I didn't ever have anywhere in my life and uh, I didn't have any good role models. So this one person who really seemed to care about me, um, it was more important for me to make her whole and happy than for me to follow this pipe dream of riches and glory, fame and glory or whatever. Did you ever once think that this was a great opportunity to get to know your dad though? That's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> no, actually, I, I did not. At the time, I did not uh, think that. Um, I, I will admit that when I first got the call, I was intrigued uh, about getting to spend time with him and getting to know him. But from that sense, no, Nathan, um, I never had that kind of warm feeling with him. He, he never came across as someone that I really wanted to go out and throw a ball with or you know get to get to know well then and like you said after being there for about a month you really never got to see him that much so when when rebecca lays this ultimatum out then it's like okay well you know it might have been a little tougher had you been actually spending quality time with your dad every single day for a month that's true and i know what you're speaking on dad because i i met him once in my life as well on my own and i got that very cold distant feeling and when i was there looking to like meet him and kind of get to know him a little bit better Mm -hmm. his solution was throw money at me and tell me to go spend it and have a good time yep and then to come and the only time he was willing to visit me was during his business hours in in the den of sin so to speak you know yeah 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 back in his office yeah you're right the relationship that i had was really more with my older brother billy Right. He, I, he, I, I missed, and I was, he was the one that I missed when I left. The money, you know, that would have been nice to have, but uh, having uh, an older brother was kind of cool too. So, like I said, it came down to either Rebecca or him, my father, and uh, I chose Rebecca. Uh, I returned to my life in Seattle. Uh, basically, I walked away from my father and my older brother. And at the time, I knew my father was rich. I mean, he had eight 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 um uh clubs if you will on bourbon street alone and i knew he had other properties and uh parking lots and all kinds of things so i knew he was rich i didn't know how rich um but on the bright side over the years i was able to have a good relationship with my younger brother who was back in uh, washington state uh, good old uncle brett your uncle brett that's right so uh in April of 1978, my first son, Nathan, was born. Uh, by then, I had achieved two of my life goals. I was married, and we were buying a home. My goals were very simple and intended to fill the voids from my uh, childhood. My first goal was to be and stay married. Divorce was never going to be an option. My second goal was to live in my own home. My third goal was to have at least two children so that they would always have companions. And then my fourth goal was simply to be rich. Well, soon after bringing Nathan home, I felt, well, we need to go to church. I reasoned if you have a family, you needed to go to church. I didn't have any other reason than that. We began attending a, a tiny Baptist church and Sometime after that, the pastor helped me accept Jesus and get baptized. And at the time, I 
I didn't grasp that that was just the beginning of my relationship with Jesus. Um, over the next 29 years, our family grew with two more sons and a daughter. Uh, we moved to San Diego, then we moved to Austin. And with each move came a new and better job, better home. Uh, we became more involved with our churches. Uh, we grew as Christians. My relationship with my younger brother also grew. And uh, we even found time to visit our father in New Orleans. And it appeared I had nailed three of my goals with number four, almost within reach. Okay. So I think you kind of, uh, I think you skipped over a little bit about your time in California. And I think you had mentioned before that you attended a Calvary Chapel while in California. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I did. I was, um, I was wondering if we could spend a little bit of time talking about your um, relationship with Calvary Chapel, how close you were with the leaders of that, because we watched uh, Jesus Revolution, where it talks right. a lot about Calvary Chapel, and we talked to Jody a bit about it, who he was also going through his conversion or his Christianity during that time frame. So right. just, and we actually attended one of the churches or the church. No. Was it the Costa Mesa? No, no. So we were in San Diego, which was okay. south, south of Costa Mesa. And this was the 80, 83 is when we moved to uh, San Diego. So the Jesus Revolution was almost a decade before that. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, Calvary Chapel had been up and going um, prior to that. Um Chuck Smith was still a thing back then. I remember uh, using his, the reason uh, I knew, remember it is because our pastor, well, let me, let me go, let me take a step further back. When we first moved to San Diego, uh, we knew we wanted to join a church because we had a really good church. We were going to um, the latter part of our time up in the Washington state area. Um, so we were looking for another church that was uh, um, kind of charismatic uh, kind of spirit-filled, um, and we found this little tiny church uh, meeting in a daycare someplace um, in our in the area we were living, mm -hmm. and the pastor's name was Larry, and he was a Culligan man by day and a pastor by night. Um, he was a nice guy, really was a nice guy. Um, in fact, uh, I think it was his mini bike that I rode one time with Kyle on the front where Oh, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> I uh, hit some gravel, and uh, we fell down, and I decided to use my face as a bumper to uh, protect my body. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had road rash on my face. I, in fact, I still have a scar on my face. It looks like somebody wrote on pen, with pen on my face, but that's actually asphalt from San Diego. And I never noticed it. Yeah, at the time, your your brother Kyle, he was riding in the front, so he fell too. Well, that's what happened to Kyle. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't know, but at the time, we'd act, he'd actually broken his collarbone. Ooh. Yeah. You didn't find so, out until trying to take his shirt off, right? Exactly. We go home that night, and and uh, mom is in the bedroom trying to help him get ready for, for, for bed. And, and he's fine up until the point where she tries to get him to take his shirt off and he's kind of resisting. He says, come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. And he did. And he fussed all the way through it. And then 
she noticed this. There's this funny bump on his shoulder, and uh, mm. boy, did she feel bad. <laughs> that had to be painful. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I digress. Yeah. Good side. Good side. So, so, um, so Larry was was the pastor of our little church, and I really don't remember what it was called back then, but uh, it wasn't doing very well. Our little church wasn't doing very well. And there was another little church in another community, not far from where we lived, and they weren't doing very well. And so Larry and this other pastor, whose name was Chuck, decided, let's merge the churches. Was and it Chuck Smith? No, it was just, an, okay. his name was Chuck, but because of Chuck Smith, his name is always stuck in my head. Got uh, it. He made it clear that he was not Chuck Smith. <laughs> on many occasions. He was a nice guy, really great people. Um, so we, we, we merged the churches together, and <clears throat> his church was a Calvary chapel. I mean, it had the, the little dove symbol and all that nine yards, and mm -hmm. had the Calvary chapel music. And So we were a, we were a Calvary chapel, and uh, uh, we had a, a decent-sized um, little group, and... Uh, it was very, um, I think, go back to, it was, you know, a spirit-filled um, relationship, relational uh, body, and uh, we just, we had some good times. It was really, a, uh, you know, again, we continued to grow. Our, our walk with, with Jesus continued, and that was a part, a time of it. Um, I And honestly, I didn't really have a clue what the, Calvary Chapel movement was all about back then. I really didn't. So they weren't they weren't a big part of y'all's church. No, they didn't not have really. a big hand in it. No, oh no, they were very hands off. But okay. our pastor Chuck was very uh, tuned in to what they were doing and where they were going. So I okay. think the material he used was from them. But uh, we really didn't have anything to do with Calvary Chapel, the big mother okay. church. All right, so you've hit three of your goals. Yep. Now we're going after number four, becoming rich. That's right. That's right. So in 2007, my past begins to unravel. We had to move my mom from Seattle to Austin because she had several health issues. She was including dementia. Uh, she could no longer live on her own. So in the process of moving... Rebecca discovered my mother had had a son in 1949, six years before me. Unfortunately, mom was no help in helping us figure out anything about him. All she said was, or she made clear, was that his father and mine were not the same. Um, nothing really came of that for about five years. In February of 2012, my father... He had retired from New Orleans to Las Vegas. Um, he, uh, he was really proud of the fact that at 92, he would go out to the various uh, casinos at night and uh, play blackjack. And he was an excellent card counter. And he was proud of the fact of how many casinos he'd been thrown out of because they don't like card, card counters. Yeah. Um, he would go, and uh, when he was done carding, counting cards or whatever it was he was doing, and they would throw him out. Well, before he left, he would always go look for a stray to bring home. And uh, 
one day he brought home a stray and that stray had a boyfriend who rolled my father in his house and uh, his maid found him the next day lying in a little pool of blood. And uh, uh, I did have that as a question. That's interesting. I didn't know. I never knew who attacked him. So that's oh, interesting yeah. to hear. It, uh, come to find out they, that he had been roofied by the stray, uh, but it, it had not taken effect because he didn't drink alcohol and he was very, very uh, careful about what he put in his body. So I suspect the roofie, if he got any of it in him, it just it just wasn't strong enough. So they clocked him and they took him out. Um, anyways, we got word from uh, he had a he had a quasi caregiver, if you will, someone who would come in and housekeep for him and you know make sure he he didn't get killed. Mm -hmm. um, she called and told us that he was in the hospital. So my brother and I, we both went down and, and uh, visited him. He went, he came down from Seattle and I came up from, uh, um, I guess I was in Austin at the time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. We, uh, we spent some time with him and, and we spent a few days in his house in Las Vegas. And uh, at the time, that's when I'd learned how much my father was really worth. Apparently, his estate was in excess of $100 million. And because of that, he had a will that stipulated all heirs had to provide DNA proof of kinship. So after submitting our DNA tests and seeing that he appeared to be recovering, uh, we went to our homes. We just went back home. Um, at the same time, though, Rebecca figured out who my older brother, mom's firstborn was and where he lived, which actually was literally within three miles of our last house in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Okay. So um, that was February, 2012. Well, July of 2012, my father died due to complications from the February incident. So here comes goal number four, right? Well, you would think. You would think. Uh, I then received a call from the DNA lab that caused my past to completely come apart. The man I believed who was my father was not. He was not related to me at all. When I confronted my mother, she was initially surprised, but in a lucid moment, she confessed that well, she'd kind of been a party girl and may have said it was him because he appeared to be the only one to provide child support, which he did until I turned 13 when I changed my name from Colacurcio to Richards. So he didn't take kindly to that? No. And that's what shocked me when he just calls you up. I was going to ask that question when he called you up to come work for him. I was like, you know, was he offended that you changed your name? But. He was, in fact, uh, yeah, that brings up a, a thing I do remember. So, yeah, when I was 19, I was, obviously I was Richards. He knew I had changed my name because he'd stopped child support. He still wanted me because he, like I said, he'd been keeping tabs on me. And he knew my work ethic. He knew, he thought he knew who I was. So I'm down there and in the conversation when we talked about that 65K, well, one of the stipulations was I changed my name back. 
And the reason so, that's... Go ahead. When I was up there, like I mentioned, visiting him that one time, within that conversation, he also asked me if I had ever considered changing my name, my last name, to Colicurchia. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. The man had never met me before, and his concern was, would you consider becoming a Colicurchia? Yeah, that's funny. That's the way he was. Yeah, um... I lost my train of thought. Stipulation for the 65K was that you take on the... Yeah. So, yeah, the stipulation was that I changed my name. Well, basically, he's offered me $65,000 a year to change my name back to Calacruccio. When I was 13, I had to stand in front of a judge. And the judge asked me, why are you doing this? And I didn't really know how to answer the question. And he says, well, are you doing this for money? And I just looked at him like, why would I do that for money? It didn't make any sense when I was 13. Mm -hmm. But I said, no, I'm I'm not doing it for money. When he asked, when he told me the deal that I had to change my name, all I could hear was that judge asking me, are you doing this for money? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So... I couldn't lie to the judge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So DNA test comes back and you are not the father. At age 57, I learned my mother had never been married. My father was not my father. And my younger brother was not my younger brother. It's a lot to take in. Uh, yeah. And by this point in time, there was no one alive from my mom's past that I could turn to for answers about my real father. So my past felt like I'd stepped into a dark closet. The only light was in the present. For the next three years, I was unable to meet my mother's, I'm sorry, over the next three years, I was able to meet my mother's first son uh, through DNA and confirm that, yes, indeed, we are half-brothers sharing my mom's DNA. Unfortunately, he didn't really care, and so we never really hit it off as brothers. So I'm back to being an only child. Um, so in 2016, my mom died, and with her, I believe, died any chance of finding my real father. For a while, I... I remember I drifted between feelings of anger and, and bleak sadness to finally the recognition that my father in heaven and Jesus were with me. And they had provided for me from the, with a, a beautiful and loving wife, four remarkable children, uh, an unbrother who shared the situation uh, and, an, and an awesome array of Christian friends and whom I could you know, draw strength and comfort from. So I had come to terms with it. So was there any particular moment that kept you from completely going off the deep end? I mean, you're mentioning your relationship with Christ, but was there like a particular scripture or friend or person in your life that, that just, or was it just something inside your head that kept you from completely flipping out over the darkness that was invading your psyche? Uh, it was basically, it was what, it was, it's, it's how God made me. Um, 
it's a combination of everything that prevented me from going off the edge. Um, I mean, I always remembered where I came from and, and I didn't want to end up there. So remember my number one goal was to be married and to stay married. Divorce mm-hmm. was not an option. If I kept spiraling down this darkness, I, I put two and two together and figured out that, you know, one of us was not going to be around and that was going to be Becky. So yeah, that, that was a primary motivator right there. Um, again, we really did have a good, um, church family. Uh, we had a lot of friends. Um, I mean, nobody, nobody I could really turn to and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's share, share stories. But, uh, <laughs> at the, at the time I just, yeah, I was kind of depressed, but it was, I think probably the easiest thing for me to explain would be, I've never understood the concept of going to a therapist. I know for some people that that means something to them, but I've never understood why you would need to do that. It's just the way I'm, 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 I'm built. I, I have nothing wrong with therapists, but if I can't work it out with God, it can't be worked out. It's as simple as that. It's black and white. So, yeah, I was... I was depressed and I was feeling bleak and I was sad, but it was kind of like, you know, well, here's your choice. You can live or you can die. Well, I didn't really want to die. So I had to live. Well, I didn't want to live that way. I wanted to live with happiness and joy as much as I could. So I basically blocked it out. That's the easiest thing. I block out a lot of stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you much about my past because I don't remember it because I've successfully blocked that. That's how I dealt with it. Okay. Um, So let's see, where was I? So uh, mom died in May of 2016. Two years later, May of 2018, a DNA test matched me with a half sister who shared the same father. She had actually, yeah, this is Susan. She had actually been raised by him. And uh, in addition to her, I learned I also had four brothers. So suddenly I'd gone from an only child to one of seven. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my real dad, he actually had died in 1993. And, and the reason really that, that Susan came into my life, it's funny because your mom and I were, uh, we were on a cruise in Iceland, of all places. And, and mom gets this email from Susan, who says, I think your husband is my half-brother. And the only reason I'm reaching out to you is because our father died of prostate cancer, and I wanted to let you know that. So from that, uh, I've <laughs> every year, <laughs> my doctor and I talk about that. But uh, uh, yeah, that was the reason she reached out to me. And uh So I just want to point out there, it's pretty interesting because cancer is so devastating to mm. anybody who knows somebody that's had cancer. It's just, it's a terrible thing to go through. But yeah. when you sit there and think about it, you and people always ask the question, you know, why is suffering happened in this world and those kind of things? There's a perfect image right there of there was somebody that suffered, 
But it allowed God to use that suffering to bring a family together. Good point. Very good point. So. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm well, and God, God also put you on Susan's heart based yeah. off of a bad situation that happened with your father. And she used that to reach out to you just to say, hey, heads up. And it caused a relationship to happen. So had, had Susan not yielded or yielded the calling that was being put on to her, y'all's relationship never would have happened. You wouldn't know to be checking yourself for prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just a matter of listening to God sure. when he yes. speaks to you and acting on it. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. In fact, so, you know, I, I never got an opportunity to meet him, but I've been told uh, that I actually have met my real father. Um, so, like I said, I grew up in Seattle. Well, growing up in Seattle at Christmas time, we had a store called Frederick and Nelson's. And Frederick and Nelson's was the store to go to at Christmas time. So you've all seen the movie, um, the Christmas movie uh, with, with the BB gun. Christmas story. Christmas, Christmas story. Christmas story. Hey, so one of the scenes in the movie is this, this department store with the window and all the stuff going on. Mm-hmm. That was nothing compared to what they did at Frederick and Nelson. Frederick and Nelson, I mean, it was a city block. That's how big the store was. And the windows in the front were all decorated. It was Christmas. Come to, <coughs> come to Seattle. So, well, obviously that's where the Santa was. So every year, mom would take me when I was a little guy, and uh, we'd, we'd go down to Frederick and Nelson's, and uh, I remember, vaguely remember this, and this is all being told to me my cousin who was with me at the time, but uh, we'd get there, and it's all decked out, the decorations, the displays, and they even had folks walking around the store dressed as Dickens characters, and uh, they had this trio of musicians, and one of the musicians was my father. He was the lead singer. Um, apparently, his, his name is Frank Sugia, and back then, he was big stuff. He was very popular in the Seattle music scene. So I've been told that we'd walk up, they were Bye. greeting people, and uh, mom would, would stop and gotcha. say hi to him, and she introduced me to him. And all I can tell you is I remember what he was wearing, but everything else is fuzzy because my focus was Santa. And this guy was between me and Santa. So, um, so that was, uh, gee, when was that? That was May of 18. Well, in September of 18, Rebecca and I traveled to Seattle and I met for the first time my big sister, I met her family and uh, one of my brothers, and I, I felt as if I had stepped out of that dark closet uh, into a very brightly lit hallway of promise. Um, a year later, in August of, of 19, uh, Rebecca and I returned to Seattle for the very first gathering of my father's offspring. We called it a union. And going forward, we expect to have many reunions. Nice. And uh, I think it, this best sums up my journey. See, all of us are either facing in or, or coming out of a storm. And often we really don't, often we aren't really aware 
we're in a storm until we are in the eye of the storm. And I can only imagine what my life would have been like had God not sheltered me literally from the beginning. By the time I realized my life was a very long and crazy storm, thank God I had a strong relationship with Jesus. I remember many times I felt lost, angry, and confused, but then I felt his presence flow over me like a, a warm blanket, and I knew that he, not me, was in control. And that's when I finally understood I had reached my fourth goal. I am a rich man whose treasure will never rust, fade, or be taken away. My name is Michael Richards Colacurcio Sugia, and this is my story. Amen. What an amazing story it is, too. Even, even as your son, hearing it again, over and over again, it's always flooring to hear all that you go through, and for some reason... I get stuck up in my head about the whole money situation because, you know, it just, I, I put myself, I think I put myself in your shoes in certain moments and that moment where he's asking you to come work for him. Like I said, I don't know that I would have been as strong at that age to have said, nah, I'm out. You know, even if it was at the cost of the girl I was dating at the time, seems like it's something, seems like it's something where you could take care of the money and then you go back and you find the girl and you say, I got the money now. I understand what you're saying. Let's work this out. But again, yeah. and then when, when you found out that he wasn't your dad, that was a blow obviously to you, but, but I'm sure to not just myself, but my siblings as well. That was quite the thing to hear and to find out, Oh wait, we're not going to come into this large sum of money. <laughs> yep. So one of the things yeah. that stuck out to me a lot that you said multiple times that growing up is you were lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> I'm just going to run through a couple statistics here and then I got a follow-up question. So you came from a fatherless home and 85% of kids in fatherless homes exhibit behavioral disorders. 90% of most homeless are runaway children. 71% of our high school dropouts. 75% are adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, 63% of youth suicides occur from kids from fatherless households, 80% of rapists, 70% um, of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 85% of youth sitting in prison all came from fatherless households. They're five times more likely to commit suicide, 32 times more likely to run away, 20, more, 20 times more likely to have behavioral disorders, <laughs> 14 times more likely to commit rape, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to abuse drugs, and 20 times more likely to end in prison. So with all of those statistics against you as a kid, not only just having a fatherless household, but really your mom also being away and you having to deal with yourself, what do you think it is that kept you from succumbing to any of those statistical disadvantages? Well, I'm not sure that I actually didn't succumb. The... Uh I think the closest I came was probably the runaway part. You 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 cited a couple of numbers mm -hmm. where high percentage of runaways. Yes. Okay. I started work when I was eleven, and I was working eleven a.m. till one a.m. in the morning, six days a week. That's a form of running away. Yeah. I was running away from mom. I was running away from home. I was looking for something. 
I think that's very similar to what the these these homeless kids are not homeless wrong word, these fatherless kids they're running away from the existence they've got they're looking for something and I've always yeah. been looking for something. What I found it really interesting what issue? you what you went to too is a carnival where people come. Like your goal seemed to always be put yourself around other people. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I uh, I would say I always thought I was an introvert because I didn't like crowds and I didn't really relate to people. But twenty five years with AT and T had me in sales, and you really can't do well in sales unless you can relate to people. So I taught myself how to fake it until I made it. So I could, I can be a very gregarious, happy, functioning person um, to the point where now it's, I can't turn it off. <laughs> uh, I, I can't not talk to somebody on the street, much to your mom's chagrin. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go someplace to a garage sale. And I'll strike up a conversation with someone. I, I never saw this person before. I'll never see him again. But we're having this deep conversation about something. That's just my makeup. Because what I never had in my past, I think I've always sought to fill with something. And uh, I suspect that's, that your statistics kind of feed into that. Now, I... Yeah, I, I find the statistics interesting. I don't find them the least bit surprising. Um, I think when you look at them from my perspective, it's kind of surprising that I'm here at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um, do you have moments in your life that you can recall that were definitely because of God? Um, do moments in your life stick out that were centered around God that that were life changing because you knew it was only by the hand of God that you got to that section of your life. Does that make sense? I don't think I'm yeah. asking it the way it is in my head. Yeah, it makes sense. So yes and no. Um, no at the time. Yes. After the time. So with, hi okay. with hindsight, you could see his thumbprint. Precisely. Precisely. It was like I said at the very end here, um, I realized that God had been with me from the very beginning. Yeah. There are, uh, I, I like to think of, of, of all of our lives are our journeys, you know, so we're journeying down this path. Well, it's not a straight path. Every road has a fork. And you know what you do when you get to a fork in the road? Well, you take it, but you don't know which way you're going. Well, there were many forks in the road and I can sit back and I can think about it. Um, you know, what if I hadn't changed my name when I was 13? That, that's that, that, what, what would that have translated to? What if I had um, not pursued Rebecca when I was 19? Instead, I'd gone on to larceny and, and forgery and, you know, fame and fortune yeah. and, 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 uh, and prison. Um, what if I had taken dad's offer? Well, you wouldn't be here, Nathan. Right. You know? It's just all these different forks in the road. Um, but I do believe that at every, well, not, not just at every fork, but I believe God has been with me all the way through. And, and uh, he, he knew 
how I was going to turn out. He knows how I will turn out. So uh, who's to say that he didn't kind of nudge me along one way or the other to help me make the right decision? He never made the decision for me. He helped right. me make the well, and, and yeah, I think that's to, very important for people to hear. And then to, you know, like it said, the decision with your dad, there was little circumstances, right? Like you were always yearning to fill that loneliness. Rebecca, yeah. Rebecca helped fill that. Whereas oh, yeah. working with your dad would have only exaggerated it. Good point. And yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Right on the nose. Uh, yeah. In fact, you know, stop and think about it for just a second. Yes, when I'm there with him in New Orleans, really wasn't there with him. I was there, but the person who had filled my um, loneliness capacity, uh, who filled me up, so to speak, that was Becky. So I had a good relationship with her, and, and I cared about her. I mean, she wasn't just my girlfriend. She was my friend, you yeah. know. Uh, and I didn't really have a lot of friends when I was growing up. I had... Uh, literally, I think I had five, not the outside, I had five friends who I would consider friends. And of those five, only two of them that I could really call and chat with and yeah. get together with. So I wasn't really, uh, like I said, I was introverted. I wasn't really uh, outgoing. Um, I needed I needed to have that in my life. Well, dad wasn't going to provide it. Um, Billy... Billy was surface only. Uh, story with Billy, I remember we went fishing one time. <clears throat> so he had this beautiful 30-foot uh, um, boat, um, you know, the the kind that's got a, a sleeping cabin down below. Oh, yeah. And, and it's got the flying bridge up above. And, and uh, I mean, it was, it was really cool. And uh, so we went out from uh, wherever the heck we were in, in New Orleans and went out into the Gulf and we were out there all day long. And I remember um, sometime uh, during the day, we decided to go over near the, uh, the um, oil rig because it's always good fishing off of an oil rig. <clears throat> well, we get over there and uh, we're fishing for a while and he goes to start up the engine. Engine wouldn't start. Couldn't get the silly thing to start. So we were close enough to the oil rig to where we could actually get over to it. Uh, either we drifted it or, or somehow we got over to it. But uh, we tied up off the oil rig, and they gave us permission to come on board. And I remember we're up there, and we had lunch with them. And and uh, while we're up there, Billy calls the Coast Guard, and uh, they came out and they towed the boat. Uh, well, we all had to be on the boat when they towed it, so they towed us back to a different dock. It wasn't the same dock we left from, and. Uh, ties up and Billy has to go and get a cab and go back and get his car and come get me. So he was gone for a few hours and he comes back afterwards and picks me up and we go home and we had to go to work the next day. You know? So about a day or so later, Billy got a call from the marina owner. Apparently you got to do something to a boat so it doesn't sink. And Billy didn't do oh, that. Yeah. He didn't put the plug and in. It, it literally it, yeah. it sunk. And, uh, Guy says, but don't worry. I raised it up. I drained it out. And it's only going to cost you, you know, whatever he said it was going to cost. And I remember Billy talking to him on the phone saying, what? Keep the boat. <laughs> he hung up. 
It was all surface Billy. It was all just ah, money. Just throw money at it. Yeah. So I wasn't going to get that from Billy either. You know, the yeah. only person that was in my life that I was having a good relationship was was Becky. I mean, I ran away from home when I was 11, so to speak. I wasn't getting a relationship with my mom. I was running away from my mother. So Yeah. I think that it's important to understand that your life prior to mom wasn't exactly ever going the way that you wanted to go, right? Like you were always, you were without a father, growing up with a mother that was never around. I'm sure that there are a lot of situations that you found yourself in growing up where it was just like, man, why can't I have a dad? Or why can't my mom be around? Or why can't this happen? Or, you know, woe is me. And, and there, and, and it would have been so easy for you to have gone different directions that would never have led you to mom, you know? Uh, And once you met mom, it was her relationship with God and her beliefs and guidance that she grew up with. They kind of helped to bring you along to this path that you were kind of already headed on already, but she definitely was a catalyst to firmly plant your feet on it. Is, does that sound accurate? And then yeah. had it not had it not been for meeting her uh, and deciding that this relationship with Christ was something that you yourself wanted to pursue, you may not have and def- probably would not have ended up with this life that you're at today in life where you're you're happy with the choices that you've made and with the journey that you've taken to get there or or you appreciate the journey that it took for you to get there because had you not been through all that previous stuff you would not be where you are where you are today and where you are today i'd assume is a pretty great place yeah yeah um i'm gonna say for the most part you're 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 accurate and and correct um at the time your mom and i met her she didn't really have a walk with christ but she did have a deeper understanding of 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 god and she had accepted jesus as her as her lord uh but that was kind of you know back shelf kind of thing so from that aspect she was way ahead of me in her walk, but she was equal to me in her position at that point in time with Christ. So it wasn't so much her walk with Jesus that saved me from the depths of New Orleans. It was just simply your mom and God's hand on both of us. Um, But yes, um, she, I think I like your use of, of mom as the catalyst uh, in my life. Cause yeah, I, I would say that she has been the one most important person in my life. Um, and because of her, I am the man that I am. Um, I've made the decisions that I made. Um, we, our walk with Jesus kind of, really began to solidify in 1978 when you were born and I decided we needed to go to church. It wasn't a, she never once was telling me, Hey, we need to do this. Hey, we need to do that. It was a, well, kind of like came home and, you know, I think we need to go to church. And she was kind of like, 
No, I think you're probably right. No, so that, okay, get, so I, I guess you're, you didn't allow your circumstances to define you. You defined your circumstances. It's kind of more of what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Right? And had right. you allowed, had you allowed your circumstances to define you, then you would not have lived this. You would not be at this place in life that you're at today. Right. Yes, you are hundred percent correct. That is probably the one reason that I get so frustrated and, and, and confused when I see reality TV and people on TV and all this victim mentality, I don't understand it. There are no victims. Victims are someone who was held up by a gun. Okay. That's a victim. and that, They were out of, out of their control, but to accept the situation, that's a victim mentality that I have never, never accepted. So once you and Becky, you know, had a child and said, you know, we need to be in church, it was a lot easier to see the path God had for you as opposed to, um, as opposed to just living on your own and in the world. As you developed your relationship with Christ, I'm, I'm not saying it right. Yeah, I know. I hear where you're going with it. Um, it was a gradual process. It did not, it wasn't an overnight aha moment. Yeah. It literally took years, years to get to the point where I recognized God's hand on me. Um, yeah, it was it was a, a long, slow process for me to come to the realization of where I am. Yeah. But yes. All right. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much, man, for joining us today. Um, again, this story is just awesome um, just to see the way God worked in your life and in the way that, you know, you, you started in a circumstance that I think a lot of kids out there are in at times and don't know how to get out of it. Like the statistics I shared earlier for fatherless home, you know, it's, it's pretty bad and pretty rough out there. And ultimately you relied on other people, someone else to, help you move in the path that was the right way. So, and to not be lonely. Um, yeah. and so if anybody out there is listening and is lonely, you know, there there's reach out to people, reach out to friends, reach out to family. Um, there, there can be better direction in your life and you just have to be able to be willing to follow that direction. Your circumstances don't define you. Yes. Yep. Amen. All right. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate you coming on, brother. Hi, guys. See you later. Bye. Don't say that it's over. Thank you for listening to Unafraid with Josh and Nate. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can catch all of our new episodes. And please leave a review to help other people find our podcast.